With us on the phone is Zee Chan, who's the director of a new film that's uh, showing at the uh, at the uh, Asian American Film Festival in Los Angeles this week. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KCI. Uh, this is Dan Sang. Um, uh, what's the name of the show, of the film, and um, what is it about? And tell our uh, audience. Uh, the film is called Children of Invention, and um, it takes place in Boston. It's about two young children who are left to fend for themselves when their mother um, gets embroiled in a pyramid scheme and disappears. And, uh, you know, the mother's, uh, this pyramid scheme is an immigration kind of pyramid scheme. Um, and was the timing set in the 90s, but you, you actually f- uh, set the, the original story was based on something that happened in the 90s, is that right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I guess um, a, a large portion of the story, obviously not all of it, um, is based on, um, I guess uh, I spent a lot of my youth uh, from the ages of 8 to 14 going around to pyramid scheme seminars with my mom and my little sister. And, um, you know, to me it felt like the early 90s were the heyday of the pyramid scheme. <clears throat> but um, as we were, we were editing the film, you know, all this stuff started coming out about you know, the Ponzi schemes and... Um, all of a sudden it was kind of in the news again and we felt like the uh, making it take place in the early 90s um, was kind of distancing. So we kind of stripped out as many of the references as we could. And so, you know, people, when they watch it, it's, um, they, they don't necessarily know that it takes place in the early 90s, but um, so yeah, the, the script was originally planned too, yes. So it's more contemporary. And yeah. You were, uh, it's a Sundance selection. Yeah, we premiered at the Sundance International Film Festival, and uh, we have been doing um, the festival circuit for the last, like, maybe a month and a half. Um, we premiered, I think, in California at the San Francisco Asian American International Film Festival, and um, we won a special jury prize there and a special jury prize in Sarasota. Um, and we've been, um, I think we did about nine or ten festivals this month, so hopefully, and this is the first um I guess this is our uh, L.A. premiere, so we're very excited um, to be playing at the L.A. Um, Asian Pacific Film Festival. Yeah, and uh, the showing is uh, coming up this week. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, we play at the DGA on Thursday um, at uh, 7 p.m., and um, then we play on Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lemley Sunset. Um, and I think you can just um, look it up by um, by going to vconline.org backslash festival. And that's the um, Asian American International Film Festival uh, yeah. site. Yeah. Um, and later on in this program, we'll be talking to another uh, director from um, showing another film at the festival. Um, the um, Why did you focus on... Why did you make this film? Um, well, I felt like... You know, it was a personal story, but I felt like um, it could be resonant for not just Asian Americans, but for people of hopefully all races and all ages. And um, one of the nice things about going around to the, on the festival circuit is you get to see the movie with different audiences um, in different parts of the country. And um, so far it's played um, pretty well for, for them. Um, uh, I guess in terms of why did I make this film, I guess it's always a little difficult to uh, say why, you know, something's going to... Um, uh, I guess warrant your attention for like you know a year or two um, of your time, but um, there's something about the story, uh, something about the family dynamic, and um, the struggle that the family goes through, and um, the eventual outcome that I guess um, made me feel like 
I wouldn't get tired of the story while I was making it, um, and that for the you know year of promotion afterwards, um, I would be still very passionate about it. And uh, you yourself, uh, some biographical information about yourself. You work out of uh, the East Coast uh, mainly. Uh, yes, yeah. I. You know, I I um, I grew up outside of Boston. I went to college at Columbia undergrad for film studies, and then I stayed in Brooklyn afterwards. And um, I moved to L.A. for about six months. I was writing for a TV show called Cashmere Mafia. And um, oh, yeah. at that point, I was here for about six months living on people's couches, and then the writer's strike happened. And at that point, I moved back to New York, and um, that's when I wrote the, scre- the script and um, went to production on it. And you, you're trying to make a film in Malaysia? Yeah, that's hopefully the next project. That project is called You're a Big Girl Now, and um, I'm working with the same producer, Manette Louie, who did um, oh. this film. And um, that is also not personally autobiographical, but it's a, a biography, a memoir-type film. It's um, about my mother's childhood growing up in a, uh, uh, in a brothel in Singapore. She was a um, she was an orphan, and she was adopted by this brothel, and from the ages of five to um, 11. She lived in the back rooms with all these other girls, and um, it's kind oh. of like a coming-of-age story. And um, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Harsh times. Is uh, is is that brothel still existing? Uh, no, it doesn't. It is. Um, it was very small, and um, the you know the girls have all grown up. And uh, we spent a couple years actually interviewing them. Um, so what oh. happened was. Um, it was you, in this brothel when you turned 12 you would start working there and wow. um, luckily for my mother when she was um, about 11 and a half an older prostitute this woman who eventually became my grandmother um, took her and they both escaped to Hong Kong together hmm. and um, in her teens um, my mom was able to achieve um, some kind of financial independence um, after you know working in sweatshops and, uh, yeah. and going to school and she went back and she found her old, her real parents and she found her old friends again and so she's still in touch with them and we spent a couple years um, going back to Singapore and um, and uh, researching the story and talking to all those women about their childhood um, the movie would be shot in Malaysia probably we're not a hundred percent sure about that um, we might shoot in Singapore it's basically wherever the tax credit is going to be best but it takes place in Singapore would it be a Singapore co-production or, um, or Malaysia co-production? We'll see. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we're looking into those um, those possibilities. Oh wow! Okay, back to the uh, the children of invention. How, how old were the kids uh, that you depict? They're pretty young. Yeah. Um. In this in the script, they're about nine and six. Um. In real life, um, Michael Chen, who plays Raymond, is ten, and Crystal Chu, who plays. Um, Tina is uh, she turned eight on the first day of shooting but she looks a lot younger so I think she's she's playing around six years old in the film yeah 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 and the mother is uh, you know is mistreated in some of these uh, you know marketing schemes that she gets involved in to try to sell some product that the buyers say don't work mm-hmm. um, was that uh, was that actually the case in some of the stories that you uh, you base this film on you know I think that there's a lot of the kind of like the business aspects of the pyramid schemes and those pitch sessions and those kind of like seminars are uh, based on ones that I went to as a kid. And I remember all these details of people who, you know, um, every once in a while there'd be a seminar and somebody would stand up and say, you know, like I know, I know someone who went through this, don't sign up. And then those people were escorted out very roughly. And um, I remember being a kid and seeing that and, uh, and some of that I remember. And I guess that was kind of where that came from. Ah, yeah, and so in the in the in the film you depict these kind of home alone kids, 
that are managed to actually fend for themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. The older brother, uh, the older kid, uh, takes care of the younger girl. Um, was that hard filming the kids uh, doing this? Was it hard to to, to film? Uh, where they, how, how did you get them to act the um, way you wanted? Well, I think you know. I, I have a short film called Window Breaker that was um, uh, in Sundance in 2007 and played at um, the same L.A. Asian Pacific Film Festival in, um, in 2007. And that one also had um, very young kids in it. Uh, th- those kids were actually five and four. And um, I don't know, there's something, there's, there's um, a lot of people don't like working with kids, but, but I do. I think that part of it's like, um, part of it's casting. You know, um, yeah. it's, uh, we looked at about 250 kids over wow. the course of two months at um, New York City uh, public schools and Chinese schools trying to find the right kids. And eventually we found Michael and Crystal um, through actually um, a casting director. And um, when we brought them in, it became very apparent that these were the kids that we wanted and these are the kids that were going to, um, uh, you know, actually perform. And, and, and you know, the, a lot of the movie rests on their performance. And so, you know, a lot of the directing process is actually casting and not compromising during casting. Um, in terms of directing the kids, I guess, um, Michael and Crystal, we thought that we were going to have to improvise a lot of the script, but they came to set uh, having memorized the entire script. And so a lot of the directing that I was doing was just kind of, you know, if something wasn't going right, not trying to push them in a certain direction and say, you know, sad or, or angry or something, but to just ask them questions about the scene and say, you know, well, well why, why do you think you say this? Or why do you think your mom's mad at you right now? Or, you know, wh- where did you come from just now? And are you feeling tired? Are you feeling... And just showing them some kind of context for the scene. I think once, they, once kids are in that, you know, once kids understand um, the scene, I think that they are you know, able to perform really kind of unselfconsciously. And you yourself actually went, uh, followed your mother through countless of uh, seminars, like these marketing seminars, huh? Yeah. And was was it um, boring to you or was it uh, distracting or what? how did you keep... Uh, no, I mean, as a family, I felt like, you know, my mom, my sister and I, um, you know, we were going around all these things, um, but... Um, you know, I felt like we were all in it together, that we were all, you know, trying to make a life for ourselves. And so it, it never felt distracting or boring. It just felt like, you know, it was something that we had to do and something that we were, you know, even as kids involved in trying to figure out a solution to our situation. Wow, yeah. And uh, did they, did your mother make money doing these things? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's yeah. the same with uh, with all these things. It's like, you know... You win some, you lose some. But, yeah, um, yeah. you know, at the time, you know, there, I think one of the reasons why pyramid schemes are kind of endemic to the Asian-American immigrant population, also, you know, other immigrant populations, is because there isn't the education and awareness of what a pyramid scheme is. So, you know, you don't necessarily know until you get hurt by a pyramid scheme that what you're doing when you're pitching these things is, um, you know, spreading this kind of predatory system. And... Um, it, it's you know it's it's always a difficult uh, realization, and I think that because there isn't the education about what what these pyramid and Ponzi schemes are, you know you don't think well you know pyramid schemes are horrible. You think you know well this is this that that one didn't work out, and there is one out there that's going to help you know my friends and I you know make a life for ourselves and uh, be able to kind of get rich and you know afford the things for our family that we want. Is it mostly to get friends to buy buy into this? 
Well, I think pyramid schemes are, are um, you know, they go by a lot of names. One's multi-level marketing. The other one's mm-hmm. network marketing. And, you know, I think um, they what they do is, uh, you know, they, most of the time they sell a product. The product is generally a cipher. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what the pro- product is. And when you pitch the product, you're actually not pitching the product. You're talking about freedom and, uh, um, you know, being upwardly mobile and having enough to provide for your family. Mm. And um, the money uh, is kind of like it goes upwards. You know, you're paid on the levels of people that you sign up and the people that they sign up below them. Um, and you use your own networks to uh, to find those leads, which is why it's called, a lot of times, it's called network marketing. They you, always, do, you do, yeah. like, you know, in, in some of these um, in some of these seminars, basically, they bring you into a room and they say, uh Okay, well, we're going to give you two minutes. Everybody, write down the names of everybody that you think that you can pitch this project uh, product to, and you know you sit there and for two minutes you write down all the names, and then they say, you know, do you have ten, who has who has ten names, who has fifteen names, who has twenty names, and you know the people with the most names get you know a prize or something. It's like a precursor of uh, Facebook. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> adding friends. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, um, the actors uh, in your film are all. Um, Actors, and they they all been playing, uh, except maybe the the girl is more into uh, playing piano. Huh? Yeah, uh, well, you know, Michael and Crystal had um, at the time we filmed it. I think they had gone on auditions, but they hadn't really acted in anything. You know, Cindy is um, Cindy Jerung, who plays Elaine, um, had been in Lady in the Water and you know a number of uh, television shows. But um, uh, this is her first starring role, which we were really excited that we could um, we could have her. She was, you know, I, I don't know if you've uh, she doesn't she doesn't actually have that accent in, in the movie. She just uh, yeah. is, is channeling, you know, somebody's accent. Um, oh. But yeah, some of the other ones, you know, it, it is difficult to find Asian American actors. Um, but um, but luckily in New York we do have a few that we can use, and we used uh, a great um, casting director, Susan Shotmaker, mm-hmm. who has cast, you know. Uh, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of fantastic indie films, and certainly a number of Asian American films. So she has experience in that field. Why, why do you say it's difficult? It's difficult find? because you know the, and this is the the case with a lot of immigrant uh, or, or minority casting is, um, you know, there's a smaller pool to choose from, mm. and there's also, um, you know, because mainly because there's a smaller pool to choose from, but also because for the character of Elaine. Um, you know, she's supposed to be about 35, and I think for Asian actresses, there's a lot of work for you when you're in your early 20s, and then there's not a lot of work for you when you're in your late 20s, 30s, um, uh, and then it kind of comes back again, and you get to play kind of um, older characters, but um, unfortunately, there just aren't that many roles to sustain actresses through that time, um, and that we felt very, very lucky that we were able to find um, Cindy, who is just such a seasoned actress, and um, was able to make you know make that character so real. The uh, the kids, uh, wait, did you have to go through a lot of uh, training? Um, not no. really. We did about we did about two days of rehearsal. I mean, the film the film was put together really really quickly. Um, the first draft of the script was finished March first, I think, of two thousand eight, and then we were shooting by July. And so, you know, I hey, can you hear me? Yeah, okay. Hey, sorry, there was a little beep. Um, and Manette Louie, our producer, came on in April, and you know, we we were casting for we were uh, we we were casting for a long time, and. Um, by the time we cast everybody and was able to get them in a room with much time to shoot, so 
we basically had um, two days of rehearsal, and then we were shooting. Oh wow! Yeah, wow. That's and how long did the film take? Um, Manette, uh, our producer, did a fantastic job. I mean, she squeezed so many days out of our tiny budget, and uh, we were actually able to shoot 25 days, which is a good amount for for an indie film of the size. And um, you know, part of it's also that. You know, there, there's there's kids on set. Obviously, they're in almost every scene, so you can't make the days that long. Yeah, 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 yeah. The uh, <clears throat> was this all, all filmed in uh, in New York then? Or, uh, it in, was in shot Boston? about half in New York, half in Boston. Boston, yeah. Ah. All and, the interiors in New York and New Jersey, and then Boston for the exteriors. Did uh, how does uh, when you're shooting? Do you have to get permits from the city, or is it easier? Since you were doing indoors, nobody knew you were doing it. Um, we got permits uh, for we mm. got permits for all the outdoor mm. the outdoor mm. areas. Um, I can't remember. I mean, for the indoors, um, I can't remember if we had to get permits. Um, the producer uh, took care of all that stuff. <laughs> so, what has been the reaction uh, response? At you mentioned some response, but overall, have you gone uh, gone abroad also? Huh? Um, we haven't done our international premiere yet, so oh. we'll see where we premiere internationally. Um, but this month alone, we played um, in San Francisco, uh, Dallas, Philadelphia, Sarasota. Um, I'm trying to think of other places. We played uh, at the, we opened the Disorient Film Festival in um, Eugene, Oregon, and then we're going to do our LA premiere. And uh, we did our Boston premiere last uh, three days ago, which was really exciting. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the local uh, settings uh, drew uh, drew probably a lot of people. Yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I, I think that you know one of the reasons why I wanted to set it in Boston and not in New York was just because there's so many movies that take place in New York and um, yeah yeah That's you know right. it, it was nice to see Boston you know in, in the movie. So there's a couple you know there's a couple scenes where they're driving and you see the landmarks and yeah, I think the people yeah. in Boston were happy to see that. Did a lot of immigrants come to see the uh, showings? Um, not really. You know, I think that it's, um, you know, there were there were a lot of, there were some Asian Americans. I know San Francisco Asian American, there were, you know, uh, tons of, of Asians, I guess, but... Um, I meant recent immigrants, I guess, yeah. Not really. I, I mean, for film festivals, it's, it's actually kind of dif- difficult for, I think, film festivals to reach immigrant populations because, you know, their, uh, their publicity budget is limited, and it's, um, you know, I think that for the most part, they're trying to get... I mean, the film festival audiences are people who are kind of indie film lovers and art, art film yeah. and foreign film uh-huh. lovers. And, um, you know, when you're a recent immigrant, you probably are not going to be reading, you know, the indie film blogs. Or oh, the alternative magazines yeah. that promote it. Yeah. I, I helped with the... I think in 1986, I helped with a uh, film festival in Philadelphia in the early 80s, actually. And um, we deliberately had a showing in Chinatown and showed a documentary about um, about the developers in Chinatown, Save Chinatown, Saving Chinatown or something. That was the title, uh, Saving a School there, actually. And <clears throat> so we had a local showing, and then we, we deliberately showed it in, in the school, I think, to try to bring it out of the you know, Penn, U-Penn neighborhood yeah. where, where they had been showing uh, the Asian American Film Festival. It's a spinoff of the New York Asian American Film mm. Festival. No, we're trying. We're trying to. Do, we're hoping that you know this last. I guess these two months is kind of about trying to do our festival premieres for the the biggest. I guess indie film festivals in 
um, each city, and then afterwards, um, once that premiere is over, we can focus on doing kind of community outreach and hopefully showing it to people who uh, aren't the tar- target audiences for these film festivals. Yeah, yeah. Did you? Uh, uh, will you? How long would it take to get it to a DVD uh, release? Well, right now we're doing. Um, we've been consulting with some, I guess, um, alternative distribution people. Oh, yeah. Um, and you know, it's been. Uh, I mean, I, I can I can go into it a little bit, but um, it's been an interesting year for indie film. You know, not that many indie films have been picked up by traditional distributors. A lot of the uh, specialty distributors have actually shut their their doors and um, closed down. And so, what a number these, uh, of people these, are. Yeah, with the ones that shut down were these in New York. Uh, no, they're New York, LA. You oh, know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, they're people who would uh, typically be acquiring films. There's, you know, there's only maybe there's very few companies that are acquiring films right now. Mm-hmm. So what we've been doing is we've been to, um, experimenting a little bit. Um, we've been uh, trying to, I guess, take the uh, indie music model. Um, you know, there's a renaissance in indie music, and trying to take that model and uh, trying to transpose it onto the indie film model. So, um, we've been selling DVDs actually while we've been on the festival circuit, and um, you know, we've been actually pretty successful so far. We found that about 10% of the audience will buy the DVD afterwards, huh. and we've been also selling the DVDs off of our website, um, childrenofinvention.com. Uh, we've been um, hopefully what we'll do is we'll do the festival circuit this year. We'll probably try to play five. To 10 festivals over the next um, nine months, um, use that festival run as part of our theatrical run. So, you know, use it as, you know, being able to play places like Nashville and Dallas and places that, you know, a distributor would have never played us at. And um, yeah. and hopefully do a self-release, at which point we'll take the DVD off the website and stop selling it um, at screenings. Um, hopefully do like a self-release, if we don't get picked up, that is. And uh, the plan is like hopefully in a few cities. So you're already selling the DVDs? Yep. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the DVD on the website has both the feature film and also um, my short film, Window Breaker, which was at Sundance in 2007, uh, which is kind of like, you know, it has some of the same characters as Children of Invention, but doesn't have uh, the same plot. It's about a string of break-ins in a racially mixed neighborhood, and mm. that went to um, a bunch of film festivals in uh, uh, late 06, 07. So both those DVDs, I mean, both those films are on one DVD oh, uh, on yeah. sale at... Um, childrenofinvention.com. So the, um, is that a different model from the usual model? Because usually the, you do the festival circuit first, then release it on DVD. Yeah, I mean, I think that what we're finding is that the indie film distribution model is broken, and it's uh, the, fest- the model that sustained indie film um, and brought about a renaissance in indie film funding in the early 90s is no longer working. And um, a bunch of filmmakers and, you know, very smart people, people like, um, you know, Ted Hope and Peter Broderick, people who, I guess, pioneered, you know, what that model was in the early 90s are trying to figure out a model that will hopefully work for, you know, the the day and age that we're living in right now. And um, we're hopefully, you know, we're gathering as much information as we can, and uh, we're logging everything. Hopefully in a year, what we would like to do uh, for Children of Invention is to be completely transparent about, you know, what our budget is, what we spent it on, uh-huh. and then also, like, you know, uh, what festivals we went to, what the DVD sales were at each festival, you know, how we were able to make our money back, foreign sales, things like that. And, um, you know... To me, it's a win-win because there's so many filmmakers that are in this boat right now. So sure, yeah. if it doesn't work out, then uh, other indie filmmakers will have some data set to, you know, look at. 
And if it does work out, then great. You know, that model is something that other filmmakers can can use to distribute or self-distribute their own films. It's like a case study. Yeah, exactly. So this is like a DIY kind of model. Yes. Yeah. So you for the time being. I mean, yeah. we don't know. Uh, a lot of indie films of this size, it can take anywhere from nine months to a year to get acquired by a distributor. So, you know, we haven't ruled that out, obviously, but at the same time, you know, we do know that um, the amount of money being offered uh, for some of these distribution deals are not enough to make our investors whole. So we're using this window of time, um, either before we get picked up or before we do our uh, do-it-yourself uh, theatrical release, to... Um, hopefully make back, you know, a significant amount of the investor's money. Is there a risk that nobody would pick it up because it's already on DVD? I don't think that's as much of a concern as it used to be. Um, mm. Mm. Uh, other filmmakers have uh, have done this before us, like uh, Andrew Bajowski did this uh, oh. with Mutual Appreciation, and um, actually he started with Funny Haha. He had uh, VHS tapes, and uh, you know, um, I think that it's like you know they eventually got a DVD D deal, even though they did a theatrical um, yeah. do it yeah. yourself. But you know, it, I think that that's changing. I think that the model of like you do the festival, you get acquired, you do yeah. theatrical, you do uh, a video deal. I mean, I think it's one of these things where it's like everything can happen at once kind of and there's not the same kind of like spacing out of of when things become available and it's also nice because you know on our website we have a longer spiel about it um on the uh, on childrenofinvention.com we've got like a a a press release kind of thing that's about you know if you're in a city where we're going to play the film like obviously we would love for you to see the film on the big screen but there's cities where you know, or town, yeah, places where, to, we're, yeah. we're never going to be able, there's no film right. festival there. Yeah. So, of course, we want people to be able to see the film and to be able to spread the word, and, um, you know, they can then get it off our website. I know having seen all these, a lot of these screener tapes or DVDs, I always enjoy seeing it on the big screen much better. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a different, it's a different experience, yeah. Well, thank you very much uh, for uh, joining us here on KCI. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, and good luck. And the showing is uh, th- this Thursday, huh? At, yeah, so, uh, uh, Thursday at, at 7 p.m. at the DGA, and then there's the Encore presentation, which is at 10 a.m. on Sunday at the Lumley Sunset. Well, thank you, uh, Director Z. Uh, Chen. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. Uh, so that was Director Z. Chen of uh, Children of Invention. Uh, we'll uh, we're right now actually beginning in the middle of our uh, fun drive here at UCI, uh, KUCI. Um, it's a two-week fun drive this time, and we're trying to um, hope that you will. We'll hope that you will be able to support this station. Uh, you can come online at uh, go online at KUCI.org, and there's a link right there to our 40th anniversary fun drive, which uh, takes place from April 27th through May 11th. And <clears throat> click on that link there, and all week uh, and next, the next this and the next until May 11th, Monday May 11th, we'll be pitching for your support to support the alternative programming, music and public affairs that is available through KUCI, uh, this station that brings you alternative news and views as well as music, um, in this bastion of what used to be conservatism in the OC, but now no longer. It's a vibrant community, a different community from what it used to be, 
and part of it is due to the culture that is um, produced by folks here in Orange County. Uh, you're listening to Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, we'll be um, hearing from another uh, guest uh, momentarily on this program, who has also another film at the film festival in Los Angeles at the Directors Guild of America. And <clears throat> uh, this week also is the continuing of the continuation of uh, the Newport Beach Film Festival, and um, there's one film that I like to highlight is the Lost and Found, a Japanese film about uh, vignettes of people that come into an office uh, on in Japan, and so that's at the Newport Beach Film Festival. But let's go back to our Los Angeles Film Festival. And uh, with us on the line is Chris Wong, who's uh, director of another film that's showing at the Los Angeles Film Festival. Um, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate it. Oh, great. Thanks for the call. Um, maybe you could tell your listeners about your film. Yeah, uh, my film is called Whatever It Takes. It's a true story. It's a documentary film about an amazing Asian-American principal who basically sacrifices everything, his former career, his, you know, he takes a huge pay cut in salary to become um, you know, a, a principal in the South Bronx and to set up a school where he's trying to get all his kids to, uh, to college. Uh, the main crux of the story is centered around Principal Tom and this one ninth-grade girl named Sharifa who's incredibly talented but has a lot of troubles in her life. And this is a documentary based with a Chinese-American headmaster. Yes, yes. I think that's uh, pretty unique. Uh, I don't think I've seen that before. Uh, that's one of the things that intrigued me was that the the lead character, Principal Edward Tom, um, is um, Chinese-American. He was born here. He was uh, born in New York City um, in, uh, in Washington Heights, which is a neighborhood that was very much like the South Bronx, very run down, uh, very much uh, populated by poor immigrants. So he really understands how... Um, how his students live and, and the challenges that they face. And he's just a great hero. I don't think we see too many Asian Americans in leadership like this, and he's just a powerful character to follow. And you, you knew you knew the, the principal? Yeah. Yeah, I knew the principal back, uh, oh, it's like maybe 12, 13 years now, wow. back when he was, even before he was in education. And that's kind of what intrigued me because um, there are a lot of people who have been in education for a long time, their whole career, and they're doing great things. But for someone like, like uh, Ed Tom, to switch from a career in fashion, and he was a buyer from men's suits and tax Fifth Avenue, as well on his way to making, you know, six-figure, probably seven-figure salary by now. Wow. He gave he gave it all up because he had this spiritual epiphany that he he felt like he wasn't really making any impact with his life, and so he gave it all up. And we tell that story as well in the, in the film, um, and and said I want I want to become a teacher in the South Bronx, uh, and he did so well uh, with these kids, and their test scores were so high that they say, we want you at the age of 37 to open up your own school. And when they asked him where, where he wanted to do school, he said, I want to do it in the poorest area, which is the South Bronx. So that's a daunting challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge that, you know, um, not many people succeed in. And I think uh, the whole of New York City, not just the South Bronx, it's, it's a daunting challenge because uh, the public system is basically uh, broken there. And so they... they they consistently try to find ways to, to improve it. And I think the only way they, they really found that that's effective is to find people who are just 
um, born leaders, and that's what um, Ed Tom is. And did he, um, did you, um, was it hard to get permission to do this, uh, because it's a documentary and you have to go onto school grounds? Right, yeah, and, and we didn't even know what was going on, I mean, what, what was going to happen. With documentary, um, we really wanted to tell a current story. We didn't want to just look back at something that happened and, and retell that with old photos. We want to say, hmm. this, is, this is his first year at the school, which was, uh, June two, which was um, September 2005, and he's a new principal. He, he doesn't really know what to expect. Uh, the students are all this first year of the school. In fact, it's the, the first year of the school. It was just created for, you know, for this very purpose. Um, and, and so we wanted to go in there and say, you know, it could go bad. It could, it could go good. But we want to be there to, to see it as it happens. He looks quite young in the film. Yeah, I mean, he's only, uh, he's only 37 when he starts. He and, he and I are actually the same age. Yeah. And, and we both met when I was in New York City as well. So uh, when, I, when I asked for access, uh, he said, you know, no problem. He, he's a very honest, he's a very confident character. So he said, you know, as long as you don't get in the way of instruction, you can be in any meeting, you can uh, be in any classroom. Um, I don't care, good or bad, just, just be, be true to what is there. How about student privacy issues? Did, um, did that come up? Uh, well, it, it comes up just because, uh, you know, as a documentary director, uh, I want to respect people's privacy, and I don't want to intrude where I'm not wanted. Yeah. However, at the same time, you, you need to get that access or else you don't get deep into the stories or the, to the characters' lives. And one thing that really helped is that all the students absolutely wanted to be there at the school. They chose to be there. They weren't placed there. And they chose to be there principally because of Ed Tom and his vision. So when he um, declared to the whole student body that, hey, there's this guy doing a documentary, they immediately trusted me because they trusted him. Now, of course, I, I still had to earn that trust myself, too, by, by making sure that I you know, didn't intrude um, into you know, places where, where it wasn't good for me. Or I told them, I said, if you ever want me to turn off the camera, you know, no explanation needed, just tell me and I'll do it. But because they, they trusted me and because their, their parents grew to trust me, too, they never asked me to do that. And that was, uh, you know, that was a real blessing for our film. Was it harder to get the parents to agree? It, it's, it's not, actually, because the parents also believed in, in Ed and his vision. And, mm. and, and when I explained to them why I was doing this, uh, to not only just, you know, follow a story, but to really hopefully break some stereotypes. Uh, because I think this is, a, um, you know, this is a science and math school. Yeah. And, for, and for a long time, I think people have assumed that um, black and Latino kids from the inner city, they, they just won't be able to succeed in these technical disciplines because there are too many, too many hurdles to cross. And I mm. think... I think there's, there's something very sinister about that because then we don't give them the chance and we think, oh, they can do well in art and drama and maybe spoken word, poetry, but they'll never be good in <laughs> technical disciplines. You know, it's, it's, it's something that we don't really want to admit. And so I felt like yeah. if I can show them succeeding um, and, and being motivated by somebody who really believes in them, wow, won't we have a great story? The problem was I didn't know that was going to happen for sure. So I really, it was on pins and needles the whole year going, you know, can it happen, can it not? So even I was learning, um, you know, and my, my preconceptions were being broken as, as I was filming. There's a lot of, uh, you know, educators don't believe in this, these kind of focus on testing, right? Right. So in this case, it worked. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Ed actually, um, you know, the principal did not focus on testing. He focused on yeah, yeah. them learning. However, he, he understands that, look, if they don't pass the test, they're not going to graduate. They're not going to get to college. So he says, I'm going to focus on you learning the, the concepts and really mastering the, the subject material. And then I'm going to also, you know, a month before the test, 
I'm going to drill you over and over again on the test. I'm going to bring you into a Saturday academy, and instead of playing outside, you're going to be in here, you know, studying for six hours. Because he, he, he wants to do both. He says, I want you to learn, but I also know that you need to go to college and you need to pass these tests. So it's not just um, just teaching people to how to pass tests? No, definitely not. Definitely not. It, it's, he has a very holistic approach to education, which I think is what's, what's needed, um, you know, anywhere, not just in inner-city communities. It's sure. that you have to take care of the whole, the whole person. And a lot of these kids, in fact, most of them, I'd say 90 to 95%, come from single-parent families. And um, those single-parent families are predominantly low-income. They're all on, uh, you know, federal school lunch programs. And so sometimes the parents can't give the support that maybe a normal middle-class, you know, a child from a two-parent household can give. Were there also language problems where there are a lot of immigrants uh, from countries that don't speak English? Uh, actually, there weren't too many problems. There, there were a few. There were some, uh, fam- you know, kids from uh, Latin American countries who struggled a little bit with English. Uh, there were a couple kids from the Caribbean. But, but more often than not, they didn't really have that challenge. It was, it was more a challenge of instilling in the kids a culture of, of, of learning, of studying, and, and that things won't come easy. I think a lot of these kids, when they come from junior high school, they're not actually expected to do any homework. Yeah. And, they're just, and they're just kind of passed through the system. They, they may not even be able to read very well, mm. but the, the, the junior high schools don't want to keep them, so they pass them, and, and they say, well, we'll let the high schools deal with them. Oh. That, that was a real hurdle to, to cross, I think. How did you try to display uh, this uh, love of learning, then, did, that, that was acquired? Um, a love of learning, I think, I think when, when kids are challenged uh, with, uh, with things that are, that are interesting, uh, let's say like science labs, you mm-hmm. know, uh, when they get to dissect a frog, when they get to learn how, um, you know, how you transfer, how, like how heat transfer works and how you make ice cream, you know, with uh, just, just all different sorts of things. When, when, they're, when they're challenged with these, these new concepts, they actually really, you know, they, they come alive. But when they are in, in schools where no one really believes in them and they just give them boring experiments, then mm-hmm. they don't. Mm-hmm. So I think what, one of the things that we tried to show is that the teachers were really invested in um, bringing out that, that spark of learning from the students. And, and, they, and they believed that they could do it. And so, and so they, didn't, they didn't just give them really easy homework. I mean, they were talking about uh, concepts that I, that I had forgotten way back in, in, in science school. And, and, and uh, I, think they, I think the kids really responded to that. Uh, how did you make the film? I mean, was it in handheld cameras or what kind of? Yeah, equipment? no. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was low, low, no budget filmmaking. Uh, we <laughs> we didn't we, we didn't want to use a tripod or have a lot of crew members on on the shoot. We yeah, just, yeah, sure. We had two or three people, basically a cameraman, a sound man, and then sometimes myself as the director um, was there. So we kept it very small, so we'd be kind of inobtrusive, and it was all handheld. But you know, it's not shaky camera. It's it's just hopefully um, it's it. The camera work makes you feel like you're right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what, what's cool, though, I think, is that the, the kids, you know, forgot about us after a while because they were so focused on learning and the, the teachers and, the, and, and, and Mr. Tom were so focused on teaching that they really didn't, didn't notice us. So I think we got to be like a fly on the wall, and, and that was good for, for the storytelling aspect. Were there any um, administrative, um, like, uh, fears? Did the administration crack down at all and from the school system, I mean? Uh, crack down on. I mean, were they worried about what what they would what what would be shown or anything like that? I mean, in terms of 
before. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I mean, that, that, that's, a great, that's a great question because I actually thought they would be more worried about yeah, yeah. letting uh, a film crew have complete access because they know that you know their schools don't have a good reputation, right? Yeah. But, but actually, uh, the Board of Education, I went to them to ask for permission. They said, well, you don't need our permission. You only need your principal's permission. So <laughs> really? really wow. it, yeah, I didn't it, know I, that. Huh. I, I think um, it, it really was because of, of, of Principal Tom's generosity and his, his absolute confidence that he would succeed that we were allowed to go anywhere and everywhere. I think if we had been with a principal who was much more fearful or much more guarded, um, we wouldn't have been able to shoot as much, and the story wouldn't have been nearly as, as complex. So I, I, you know, I really credit uh, Principal Tom for, for giving us that access. Did he go to um, uh, education school? or I mean, how did he get well, to become a principal? I mean? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you kind of the backstory. Um, he, he had been been a buyer from Mansuita's Baxter's Avenue. Right, right. He had this epiphany. He, he said, you know what, um, I will try to get a teaching job. I'll give, I'll give myself one week to get a teaching job. <laughs> and he had, he had no background at all. All wow. he had done was, you know, he was, he was very good at math in, in college, but he had never done any teaching except, you know, Sunday school. So, um, so actually in three days, he got his teaching certificate because the New York City public school system is so desperate for math and science teachers that oh. they will take anybody who shows proficiency even if they don't have any kind of a teaching certificate or any classes in instruction. And basically, as you teach, you, you go to, um, to, to school you know, on the weekends and in the evenings. And so he got his certification through his first you know, three to five years of teaching, and then he continued to go to school to get his master's so that he could become a principal. So he really learned on the fly. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I and, think what, what, what's cool about him is that he, that there are certain things that you cannot learn. I don't think you, you can learn to be a leader if you're not naturally born a leader. And um, he just had that intrinsically in his character. Some people, uh, you know, could be good uh, in the topic, right? I mean, in right. the subject, have subject expertise, but don't know how to teach. Right. Right. And then some, some principals out there are actually very good leaders, but they don't actually understand the instruction. They don't understand what really makes kids learn. And so mm. here's, here's a guy who is a great leader and so does, does great work you know, administratively, but he's also a great teacher, so he understands like, what his teachers need and, and how to make them effective. So um, I know he's, like, he's got all the tools. Does he want to be uh, in, you know, did he, so he was a line uh, teacher for a while, right? Before, how many years was he uh, teaching before he became principal, I mean? He was teaching for uh, five years um, in, in public schools, in high school, and then he, he was so good they made him um, into some kind of a, a supervisor, superintendent. So he would go around to like five or ten other schools and make sure that their math instruction was, go was going well, and that was another two years. So it was about uh, seven years before he, they made him a principal. So are, are the teachers all unionized at the school then? Yes, and, and that actually was, was an issue that came up because, you know, Ed works, you know, 14, 15-hour days, and he kind of expected his teachers to do the same thing. <laughs> yeah. because it's, but because it's, you know, public school, every, all the teachers are in the union. And right. so the teachers were very enthusiastic, but after a while, you know, they got burned out because they don't all have the same energy level as, as Ed, and they have to deal with the students every single day, every single hour. Yeah. So there was conflict there about, you know, hey, we you're overworking us. We're getting sick, and, and this has to stop. So he had to learn, too. I think another thing, hopefully, that a documentary shows is that even though yeah, yeah. He, is, he is a hero, he's a flawed hero. And not everything goes the way that, that he thinks it's going to go. Um, and I think it's important to, to show that, in, in addition to the triumph, there's a lot of struggle. 
So he's a human being. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Yeah. Because yeah. no, no one's going to believe just the superhero character. I mean, that doesn't. That's not really realistic. But like, uh, you know, the people try to uh, compare this probably to Stand and Deliver. Is that was that the other film that was set in the area? I mean, actually, yeah. the, the whole the whole um, concept of of you know great teacher, great principal, you know, reforms the whole school is is almost a Hollywood genre. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You, you've got you've got Stand and Deliver. You've got uh, Freedom Riders. You've got you know mm. so many other other ones here. And I think what I'm hoping to do with this documentary is say, look, those are those are fiction films based upon some kind of reality, but you don't quite know where the reality and where the fiction is because it's it's Hollywoodized. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's oh. too romanticized in a way. Right. right. So people come out of it, and they're, and they're kind of inspired, but they're like, well, that can't really happen, but it's a nice story. When yeah. they come out of, of, of whatever it takes, I'm hoping that what they that it stays with them because they're like, what I saw could not be faked. This is this is the truth. These are the real people. So not only am I inspired, um, uh, I'm you know I'm moved to, to action in some way. And you show a variety of students. Uh, uh, their lives and their different um, expectations and the how they how they um, survive. Yeah, yeah. No, we. I mean, we definitely focused um, mostly on just one character because I think if in a ninety-minute film, if you really want to delve into someone's uh, life deeply, you, you can't spread it around to too many characters. It has to be about about one person. But but we did follow six other yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. And so while we, we couldn't show their whole lives, we showed different aspects of, of what they were going through, hopefully as a way to illuminate what this main character, Sharifa, was, was going through. And uh, do, you, uh, do you plan to have it released on DVD after the festival circuit or, or simultaneous with the festival's uh, circuit? Well, I mean, this is my first film, so I'm not really experienced in how yeah. in how to release a film. But you know, I've been getting a lot of advice and doing a lot, all my research. I think we'll definitely have DVDs available after the festival, but I don't know how soon after. Um, one one great thing that we'll we'll do is we're going to have a nationwide uh, PBS broadcast. So as far as television distribution, uh, oh, wow. we just got uh. we just got word last week. I mean, it's, it, I was thrilled to, to learn that um, Independent Lens, which yeah. is a national uh, documentary series on ITVS uh, right. on, on PBS. Um, is is you know going to pick it up for 2009 2010 season? So I think it's probably going to show in early 2010, um, and you know we're going to have that's like 500,000 viewers right there. Wow! Yeah, that's so like maybe, so, that's so maybe, like, we'll, we'll, yeah. maybe we'll time a DVD release like around that. Oh wow! And so did um, did they see it at a festival, or how how did they find out, or you submitted to them, or? What? Yeah, I've actually been in conversation with uh, independent television service for a long time. That that's ITVS is who um, kind of curates independent lens, and so they've they've been aware of our project. Uh, they weren't able to fund it um, for the production or post production, but once they saw the final product, they're like, "Hey, we love this," and 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 they wanted to to have it. You mentioned funding. Did was it all from credit cards? Or <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, I'm glad actually it was not through credit cards, but a lot yeah. of it was through you know personal savings and um, yeah. just just people on my crew being so generous with their time and you know I, I still owe them a lot of money, um, but they were, because they believe <laughs> in the project so much you know I haven't really paid myself either, so we're, we're hoping yeah. to, to recoup some of that budget. But um, the the two organizations which really really uh, you know stood up for us was the Sundance Institute for Documentary Film. Yeah, uh, they 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 were the first big money in. And that just gave our project so much legitimacy. And then the second uh, funder who gave us uh, just so much support and, and really needed funds at the, at the right time was the Center for Asian American Media. Mm. I just can't, I can't tell you how 
incredible, the Center for Asian American Media. I think they're really on the cutting edge of, of, um, of understanding what, uh, where film is going, and I think they really recognize in this documentary that, hey, here again is, is an Asian American male role model that, that needs to be seen. Yeah, for sure. The, and you actually study economics at Princeton. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of had a, have a similar story to Ed in that my whole you know goal early on was just to make a whole bunch of money and have a family and settle down and you know, just live a kind of a normal life in, in the business world. And uh, that didn't work out, and I just it wasn't something that, that I really loved doing. Yeah. And so I, I kind of made a transition to film and video in, back in the year 2000, just feeling like, you know, I don't, the salaries, there basically is no salary for a documentary filmmaker, <laughs> but it, it's such a rewarding career that um, I knew that, that kind of was what I was made to do. Did you actually go to film school? or? Uh, I didn't really go to film school. Documentary filmmaking, luckily, is something that you can learn on your own. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually got accepted into the UCLA MFA documentary program, but I couldn't go because of some, um, some family conflicts. Mm. So instead, I just I went to a local city college. I took a couple of video production classes, and then I just watched a lot of films and just tried to absorb what is, it, what is the director doing there, what is the camera doing here, and reading books. And then just kind of, you know, making my own project really is almost the best the best film school that you can have. So by the time you got involved, it was mostly digital, right? Yeah, which, which is good because, you know, I couldn't have afforded to film. So yeah. the digital medium allowed me to make this documentary relatively cheaply. And since you focus on current day stuff and no, you know, archival uh, research in terms of uh, pictures and stuff from the past, it was, right. easy, it was much more immediate, I guess, yeah. Easy right. To, yeah. Right. I mean, I, 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 I think the, the whole... Um, uh, you know, documentaries used to be uh, another right. a code word for boring to people because <laughs> they, they would be they basically be okay. I'm going to watch a documentary. I'm going to watch a whole bunch of black and white pictures float by and a narrator's voice, you know, speaking in a in a solemn tone. And I wanted to absolutely you know break away from that. And I think documentaries are, are trending towards let's follow a current story, let's let's be there as things happen, and that's going to create suspense and a drama that you can't get from a, a story that's told in the past. But that also shows, that almost also means, I mean, you have to be there, I guess. I mean, you have to be there when it happens, I guess. Yeah, yeah. no, totally. And it, it's much more risky because you don't know what you're going to get. Right, you know, right. I, yeah. I wasn't sure if I was going to follow, you know, Principal Ed Tom succeeding or if I was going to follow him getting fired halfway through the year. Oh, you know, yeah. I, I didn't yeah. know, but I felt sure that there was going to be some kind of drama. But, you know, we shot, we shot probably almost 170 hours of footage yeah. to, make a, to make a 90-minute film. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> you definitely have to be there. What happens to the the outtakes then? What would you do with that footage? Or is it going to be archived somewhere? Or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, there's, again, there's a lot of students that we followed um, who kind of didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Uh, the principal has a lot of great scenes that also are not going to make the final cut. And so we're going to put those on our DVD extras, um, and people will be get to see more more there. Oh, that's great, yeah. Well, you, I know that uh, sometimes these DVDs, I mean, I work in a library here at UC Irvine, and mm-hmm. a lot of the DVDs uh, sometimes, I, maybe it's more true for DVDs uh, aimed at the secondary school market. They come with uh, like a course outline and, uh, you know, like some little out, uh, extra little thing that shows uh, how to use it in a classroom, I mean. Uh, <laughs> I don't think, uh, we, we don't really use that in, in universities, but... Um, do you try to? Are you trying to do something like that? Maybe. 
Yeah, no, uh, that's that's a great question. We're we're really um, hoping that not only does the general audience see this, but that this uh, film can be used uh, in a way to impact high school students and. Um, that teachers can use this as a way, you know, maybe a social studies curriculum or something. So in addition to selling the DVD itself, we want to provide, um, you know, curriculum materials so that, that students can really draw something from it. And I think one of the things that we do is we, we don't draw any conclusions about the school. We, you know, obviously we show Ed Tom as being, um, you know, a, a, a passionate figure and the students, you know, succeeding more often than not. But we don't want to just say, hey, it's all rosy. We want we want students to be able to explore the issues of what does it take to run a school or what are the different tensions that teachers and administrators face? What are the different backgrounds that students have to, that students are coming from? And I think that will make it a fascinating study for, uh, for high school students. And hopefully it will inspire some of them to, to say, you know what, I can do it too. If this girl can do it, um, you know, I can do it. Yeah, and uh, so what are your plans for other films in, in the future? Yeah, I, have, I actually have two other films uh, in the pipeline. Um, one film is about um, people who are absolutely, hopelessly, psychotically addicted to television game shows. Hmm. So it, it's completely different. It's not really, uh, you know, socially. Uh, it's not really relevant to social justice issues. It's more <laughs> just more just an exploration to what really drives this small segment of society. Actually, it's not a small segment. People, a lot of people, love game shows. Um, but it's, it's kind of showing these people trying to get on their favorite game show. And we were actually shot almost 90 hours of footage of people all over the country. And it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty exciting, and I think it's pretty funny. These are people um, trying to get on, not just people watching. Yeah, yeah. And, it's, you know, people, I don't think people know how difficult it is to get on the game show. Oh, I'm it's, sure, yeah. yeah. It's probably harder than getting into college or, <laughs> you know, becoming an actor or whatever. It's, you really have to pass through a very rigorous audition process. Um, and so it's you know we go to the Price is Right, we go to Wheel of Fortune, we go to, go to Jeopardy, and it's it's pretty interesting. <laughs> uh, the other project that I'm working on right now also has to do with um, you know Asian American uh, issues. We are following um, an Asian American pastor here in in Los Angeles area who is head of a relatively conservative you know Baptist church, and he's trying to get his congregation to start a dialogue with a gay and lesbian um, Asian American Christians. Wow. And I think I think. You know, there's, again, there, we're not taking one side or the other. We're just saying we want to follow, can this kind of a discussion occur? Can two groups that are, are, are supposed to be completely opposite to one another, can they come together and find some, some unity and some dialogue? Is this uh, more Southern Baptist, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it, uh, church uh, orientation, or is it more it, nor- it, Northern Baptist? Northern Baptists are more... You know, from Fort uh, Valley Forge, uh, Pennsylvania, more liberal. Southern Baptists are more conservative. Yeah, I would say it's not. Uh, it's not really a Southern Baptist church, but it's not. It's not exactly what they call a liberal church. Yeah. You know, I think I think Asian Americans uh, in general have have uh, not wanted to deal with kind of the gay and lesbian issue, and that's usually just kind of uh, dragged under the the rug. And like, well, we just prefer not to talk about that whole issue of homosexuality. So. This pastor says, well, from what I see and, you know, when I read the Bible, uh, we're supposed to love everybody and, and not shun anybody. And so he's, he's trying to bring out the discussion and get people to really understand what, what love is. Uh, but, it, but without saying, you know, homosexuality is wrong, homosexuality is right, he's just trying to start that dialogue. And I think it's very similar to what, you know, happened, you know, in the 50s and 60s with, uh, with race issues where, 
a lot of pastors, well, not, some pastors are trying to get the congregations, most, mostly white, to talk with black congregations. So we're trying to kind of do an updated um, version of, of that exploration. Yeah, because the church groups are mostly being, um, the, ch- the Chinese uh, church groups, I mean, have been mostly against Prop 8, for instance, and yes. uh, organizing against it in the, the, and covered by the Chinese media more. Well, uh, you know, it, it's actually, it's, it's kind of split. There, there are some churches, Asian-American churches, which have been against Prop 8, but there have been a lot of Asian-American churches which are for Prop 8. So um, what was cool was that we were shooting during the whole, you know, Prop 8 uh, debate and discussion. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of a very timely, uh, timely issue. Oh, yeah. So that, is that um, already done, or is still, you're still working on it? Still working on that, too. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as a documentary director, you don't have a, a chance to say, oh, I'm going to work on that in three months later. If it's happening, you kind of have to shoot it right now. So right, right. Yeah. They're, all, they're all being developed as, as we speak. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Christopher Wong, uh, the filmmaker of Whatever It Takes, about right. a, a gritty uh, you know, look at uh, a gritty school in, uh, in, the, in the Bronx. Uh, how? Uh, when is the, the film showing on Saturday? Yeah, it's showing on Saturday, May second, at one thirty p.m. in the large six hundred seat theater in, in the DGA. Um, just a note for for people who are, have the the paper version of the program. The paper version of the program says it's at four p.m., but that's because we had a time change to get into a larger theater. So it's not at four p.m. It's at one thirty p.m. on May second, Saturday. Oh, okay. I'll correct that also. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, so much. I appreciate it. Keep posted. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Uh, so that was uh, Christopher Wong, the director of Whatever It Takes. Uh, both directors uh, that were on the show, Zi Chan and Christopher Wong, are showing films at the, at the Asian American uh, International Film Festival in Los Angeles this week. And uh, at the same time, the Newport Beach Film Festival is uh, going on, and we've mentioned Lost and Found, who is, which is directed by Nobuki, Nobuyuki Miyaki, I believe. And uh, so that, uh, more information on that is on our Subversity homepage at KUCI.org, uh, org slash Subversity. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. Remember, this is the KUCI Fund Drive uh, starting today. You can go to the Fund Drive page at KUCI.org and click on it. Thank you. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>